Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. But uh, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, I think it's important to be reminded of some of what's going on here. Mark has a purpose or an intent that he's leading us to. He's bringing Jesus from obscurity to the cross and slowly marching Jesus nearer and nearer to Jerusalem as he goes through this uh, historical retelling. Uh, For me, when we go through the Gospels, though, there's just great power in seeing Jesus in action. There's great power uh, taking what we see in the Word and being able to see how Jesus, who we know is God, who we know resides currently in heaven, but how he would live right here on this place that we call earth, that we can kind of interact with him in that way, uh, I think is important, and it allows us to see a clearer picture of what we are supposed to be like as Christians uh, going forward in our life. Uh, it's, it's such a, a, a more detailed picture. And I do think for us it can be very helpful to understand even the context of an individual passage. Uh, as we've been going from Mark chapter 8 on, uh, Jesus has been kind of saying over and over again, he's going to say it for the third time this week in Mark chapter 10 here, that he's on his way to Jerusalem, that when he gets there, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and then he's going to raise again on the third day. But as he's going to Jerusalem, he's not the only one going to Jerusalem. Certainly his disciples are following him there, but they're going to Jerusalem as part of one of the pilgrimage feasts that God commanded in his law that all the Jews would come together at the time of Passover in order to remember the the work that God did as he brought them up out of Egypt, as he allowed them to pass over into the new land there, as he allowed the the angel of death, if you will, to kind of pass over his people who were covered, their doorposts covered by the blood of the lamb. And now what he's doing is he gathers all of these people together to see that or celebrate that. They're actually going to begin to hear about this guy, Jesus Christ, who's come to be the lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. And so we have kind of this cool thing where God is taking the historical doctrines that he's taught, that he's brought the people of the nation of Israel through, and he's personifying them in Jesus Christ, where they're going to see literally the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as they all come together and hear about these great things, and then the ultimate resurrection of Jesus When they leave there, they're going to take that good news, that gospel message with them as they return back to their homes. And it's God's way of kind of spreading out the story. And obviously it was successful because 2,000 years later in Cheyenne, Wyoming, we're still talking about this. So uh, pretty exciting to see kind of the bigger picture, what's going on behind the scenes in what God is trying to do here. Uh, We know that he's headed to Jerusalem because verse 32 tells us they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jesus, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So as this crowd is making its way to Jerusalem, kind of this fascinating thing happens. It says that Jesus has kind of walked on ahead of them. So he's already told them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. You'd think he'd be the last in line to get to Jerusalem, right? 
Like, wouldn't he be like, yeah, you guys go on, I'll catch up to you. You know, like, that's the way we would look at this. But it says Jesus kind of goes on ahead and his disciples who are kind of following after him, it says they're amazed by this. Wow, this is amazing. Look at him just moving his way towards Jerusalem. And even behind that, the rest of the crowds are starting to get a little bit of fear going within them. Uh, and I don't know, it doesn't specifically say why they were fearful, so I'm going to draw a conclusion here. Uh, but it would seem to me that if they understood some of the Old Testament prophecies, and if they recognized that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the son of David, the ultimate uh, um, right to the throne of the nation of Israel, they might see him as actually going to Jerusalem for the purpose of establishing himself as king, which might cause the Romans who think they're in charge of all of this, it might make them a little bit angry. So there might have been just this kind of little fear that there might be this rebellion that's starting to form as Jesus is bringing crowds of people with him to Jerusalem. They're just going for the holidays, man. They're like, we're just, we're going to Jerusalem because it's, it's Passover. It's, this is what we do. And now we've got people getting all stirred up about this Jesus guy. And what if we get to town and he gets all stirred up and they try to make him king and the Romans begin to kind of fight against this. Next thing you know, our entire vacation is messed up. Like, I don't know exactly what the fear was, but it says they're fearful as they see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. And so he takes his disciples aside just to remind him, because if you haven't said something three times, nobody really gets it right. Certainly because he's talking to men, we could say that. You see it all through the Bible, right? Adam, Adam. It's a repeating of these things over and over again when he speaks to men. Uh, but in verse 33, as he tells them again for the third time since chapter 8, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, the chief priests are going to condemn me and hand me over to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles are going to mock, spit on, scourge, and kill me. And then three days after that, I'm going to raise from the dead. Now, if somebody had told that to you, I wonder what your response would have been. Because the response of the disciples in each of the three instances is very weird. If somebody tells you that they're just a few days away from the end of their life, you would think that your first response would be compassion, support, encouragement. But let's remember in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus tells him, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die and raise again. And Peter rebukes him. No, you're not. Who are you, Peter? I'm God. You tell me what to do. Jesus handled it well. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Just so everybody was clear which side Peter was on in that moment. That Jesus having to go and surrender his life for this sinful people... He's just making it clear that anybody that's trying to prevent him from doing the work that God called him to, standing on the side of Satan. Then you jump forward to chapter 9, verse 31. Again, Jesus tells them, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples' response was to argue amongst themselves which one of them is the greatest. Probably the one willing to die for the world. That's probably the greatest one. Probably the one you call master or rabbi, the one that you're following everywhere he goes. That's the greatest. Who are you guys? So here it is now the third time. We'll see if they have figured this out any better. Hint, no. <laughs> Verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, 
we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. That's a setup question. Never answer that question. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's the right response. Find out what it is before you say yes. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is my, not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So here we have this situation. Jesus just told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. And they start jockeying for position. They start to figure out which one. And I, I want to give these guys a little bit of a pass here. I'm going to give them a pass for two reasons. Pass reason number one, we're looking at this after all of this happened, going armchair quarterbacking it, right? Like, that's not how I would have done it. Yeah, because we weren't there and we already see how this turns out poorly for them. Obviously, we wouldn't want to do it the poor way. But they're coming at it from a different perspective. They don't have the New Testament. They have just the Old Testament. They're trying to comprehend things through the Old Testament prophets. And as somebody who's taught verse by verse through all the Old Testament prophets, I can tell you that could be a little bit confusing if you don't have the New Testament. I, I could recognize that it's hard for them to see what Jesus means that he's going to go to Jerusalem, right? and suffer and die, and three days later rise again. Maybe they aren't quite understanding that in a very uh, realistic sense. Maybe they're thinking of that in more the prophetic sense, and so he'll struggle for three days, but then he'll raise victorious, and he'll enter into his kingdom there. He'll stand as king of Jerusalem as they viewed the coming son of David, the Messiah that they were waiting for. So they're thinking to themselves, yeah, okay, all that stuff aside, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, when you're sitting on your throne... Can we be on your left and on your right? The sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. Uh, we find out actually in the book of Matthew, this wasn't exactly just their idea that their mom kind of put them up to it. And so apparently she was the mom of thunder. But, um, and I can again, I look at this even as an adult son, I can think to myself, there are lots of times my mom has asked me to do uncomfortable things that I'm like, it's my mom. So I can kind of, I'm starting to kind of put all of this together in my mind. I remember when I was in, uh, I was a teenager and we went to the Lincoln Theater to watch a movie and we're watching the movie and my mom says to her teenage son, would you please go tell the manager to turn it down? It's too loud in here. And so here I am, I'm, I'm a teenager, so I'm already awkward. I'm already unsure of myself. I'm already kind of struggling with who I am and whether or not people should even care that I exist. And now my mommy has asked me to go tell the manager of this theater, turn it down. And so here I, I walk out, and I'm like, I'd like to speak to the manager, please. And, and he comes out, and I said, my, my mommy says you should turn it down. <laughs> and he says, no. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Of course, I don't tell my mom what they say. I just walk back and say, I asked. So I can see kind of the struggle that maybe John, James and John might have as this question is asked. And moms, moms think their kids are the greatest kids on planet Earth. Everybody else has cute babies, but mine are cuter. Everybody else has smart kids, but mine are smarter. 
Everybody's kids are going somewhere. It's just some are going to prison and mine are going to college. It's just, that's just the way that moms, they kind of look at their kids and like, my kids are the best. Was that too far? Was that taken a little farther than moms maybe would take that? But that's kind of, and so I can see mom, who's probably not been with him this whole journey, but she's now making the journey to Jerusalem for Passover. So maybe she's kind of reunited with her kids and she sees they're hanging out with Jesus and she's proud of them. And she's like, man, look at them go. She's trying to encourage him. And so they ask this question, can we sit, when you enter into glory, or as it says in Matthew, when you enter into your kingdom, can we set one on your right and one on your left? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking me, do you? And it's true, they really didn't because they didn't comprehend what that meant when Jesus came into his glory. The first thing he says is, you can't even drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from or from the baptism that I'm about to drink from. And I think that's actually true in this moment that they were not ready to die with Jesus on that day. They might have stood up and said, we're able. They might have said, let's go to Jerusalem and die with you. But we all know how the story ends that after he died, they scattered. All of his disciples scattered after he died. And he had to like draw them back after the resurrection, right? So we recognize they're just talking tough here. But then Jesus does go on to tell them, now don't get me wrong, you guys will suffer the same cup that I'm going to suffer, the same baptism that I'm going to suffer. It's just not going to come until after the resurrection when they finally, when their faith becomes real to them. When they start to understand what he meant when he said, and I know it's not complicated for us, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and three days later I'm going to rise again. For us it makes total sense because we've read the end of the book. We get it. But for them, that would have been a complicated concept that how is he going to fulfill both his role as Messiah and die? Those things don't seem to balance, and so the equation is kind of all thrown off in their mind. They're kind of struggling through this, but we know that in Acts chapter 12, James is going to be put to death by the sword. He's going to be put to death by the sword. Eventually, he'll get to suffer like Jesus. Now, John, a little bit different outcome for him. Uh, historically, we've been told that they tried to kill him a bunch of times, and they just failed. They even tried to boil him in, in oil or, or something like that to put him dead, and that didn't work. So eventually, we see in Revelation chapter 1, they just exile that old man to an island. And just like, you, you can't do any damage in Patmos. He's like, oh yeah, watch me. And he writes the book of Revelation and sends that out to the world. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> anyway... But he, he had to suffer through his faith as well. He's going to have to suffer like Jesus did, but they weren't ready for that yet. And then he says this, sitting on my right hand or on my left hand, that's not even my decision. Somebody else has already decided who's going to sit on my left and on my right. And so it kind of brings to mind this question, first of all, who gets to decide that? Uh, I think it's God the Father, right? God the Father is going to make that decision. But do you ever wonder who those people were that are going to get to sit on the right and the left of Jesus? I can partially answer that for you if you're curious. I don't know what practical value this has for you in the long term, but it's just kind of a fun thing. Uh, first of all, anybody got any guesses? Well, you were first service. You can't come back second service. <laughs> That's not fair. God, uh, smart kids. This is like Sunday school class all over. Everybody knows the answers. It's true. Multiple times in the scripture, Psalm 110, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 7, we're told that the vision of glory, when Jesus is in glory, that he's at the right hand of the Father, which means that the left hand of Jesus is God the Father, which begs the question if Jesus says, you don't even understand what you're asking. What you're asking me is to tell my Father to move farther down the table so that James and John can sit next to me. You see how messed up that is, right? 
But they don't understand any of that yet. They can't comprehend those things. Their focus is on themselves and their position as they're kind of jockeying here. Now, on the other hand of Jesus, I have a guess. I'm going to guess it's the Holy Spirit, although that could be wrong. It could be that the Holy Spirit was on the other side of God the Father. But I'm just going to guess. But if it's not, you guys can start jockeying now. That spot's open. I always sat as far away from the teacher as possible, just saying, but you guys, if you want to sit right next to him, you go for it. Get you in trouble. So Jesus tells them, that's not mine to give. It's for those whom have, for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, though, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Well, I never. Can you believe those two? I cannot believe them asking Jesus if they could sit on the right or the left. Obviously, those seats are reserved for me. Like you just kind of hear the, the debate that began because they've already had this argument. The last time Jesus told them he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die and raise again three days, they already had this argument where they're just trying to decide which one of them, and they've already been arguing over which one of them is the greatest, and I'm sure they weren't arguing that somebody else in the room was greater than them. They're all arguing for themselves. So these guys are now indignant with this. You've got the ten that are angry with James and John, and so Jesus has to settle the class down. He says, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So as the ten are upset at the two, upset because they themselves want to be in the best position, because they're still seeing this as about them. How cool are we? We get to hang out with Jesus. How awesome are we? We get to be with the guy who's going to be king. They think there's some amazing stuff. Jesus has to come in and correct them, and he says, you're acting like the world. You're acting like Gentiles, which was an offense at the time. You're trying to lord it over people in position. You're trying to be above other people. You're trying to exercise authority. That's not the way it's supposed to be among my people. My people, in fact, are supposed to fight not for the top position, but the bottom position. That we should, should be servants of all. And then he takes it a step further. He double downs on it, doubles down on it. And he says, not just servants of all, slaves of all. That's uncomfortable language there, Jesus. Could you say that a little nicer? How about the occasional servant of some as it's convenient for you? How about from time to time you might slave away for somebody, but to call me the servant of all? All, that's a lot of people. And the slave of all? You mean everybody's my master? Yeah, that's what Jesus is teaching us. That's the way the kingdom of God is designed to work. That we're not trying to earn position. We're not trying to be better than anybody else. We're trying to serve everybody else. We exist as image bearers of Jesus Christ to duplicate his ministry to the world. That's how he sees it. 
Now, you might ask, what's the end of that? Because there's some practical considerations here, right? Like, if I have to be the servant of all, I would never get anything I ever wanted to do done, right? And now my life is no longer my life. It belongs to the rest of the world. That sounds exhausting. And can I just say, when I read through this, I was kind of rereading through it this morning. When I thought about this, my mind immediately went to one specific human being in this world who I know would torture me. They would just be like, so you're a Christian now, huh? And the Bible says you're supposed to be slave of all now, huh? Come home with me. We have some chores to do. Like, I, I'm just like, I'm taking it to like the worst extreme, right? If I'm supposed to be slave of all, how is that going to earn me a better position at work? How is that going to earn me the retirement I'm looking for? Well, simple, it's not. Because it was never designed for that. Uh, there's this new move within Christianity. It's really not new, but they, they kind of talk about this idea of servant leadership. And there's certainly some value to that. Uh, but I just want to warn you in that, that uh, number one, many of the people who are pushing for servant leadership are pushing in such a way that says, if you serve, you'll become great to the point where you become the leader. If you serve enough, you'll work your way up the ladder. They're looking at it backwards. And in particular, when you put this in the hands of people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, they miss the purpose of serving altogether. Serving is not about you gaining position. And Jesus has been trying to teach this to the disciples over and over again. As he's repeated this, he, he grabs a little child and says, the least are the greatest. He, he has them feed the thousands of people and he tells them, you're the waiters for the day. Your job is to go take them the food. He's been trying to teach them over and over and over to be the servants of all. So what's the motivation for the believer to serve anybody else? That's the question. Like, what's the motivation for us? Well, first Peter gives us the motivation. Usually I have to talk poorly of Peter when I'm going through the Gospels, but thankfully he wrote a book later to correct some of that. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. It says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it gives us here these two purposes in serving. Purpose number one in serving is every gift that you have, every strength that you have, everything that you have came from God. So you should be a good steward of that. You should not misuse what God gave you in your gifts or your talents. You should use them for the purpose that God gave them to you, which is to serve other people. That's the design that God has. And then the second reason we serve other people is not so that we can be glorified, but so that he can be glorified. Now, this word glorified for us is kind of a mystery word. Some people kind of get all caught up on what that means. Uh, but if I were to put it into a simple respect for you, the word glorified is, is kind of like the idea of illuminated. And when something's illuminated, it draws attention, it draws the looks, and everything is illuminated, illuminated, glorified by illumination. 
Uh, uh, One of the pictures I've seen before, one idea is the sun has all the light, right? This uh, S-U-N in the sky. The moon has no light. It doesn't radiate light. But instead, what the moon does is it reflects the light of the sun. And so to glorify Jesus, the best way we do that, he is the light of the world. We reflect that light in our life. So he becomes known by the reflection of him in our life. Uh, To put it in an even simpler sense, glorifying God is essentially bragging about him. It's pointing everybody towards him. It's directing all the attention away from ourselves towards him. That's what it means to glorify God. So when we serve, we don't serve to gain a greater position. We don't serve for the kudos. We don't serve for the money. We serve because we want to glorify our God. That we want him to get more attention. We want him to be the one that gets more recognition. That's why we serve. All other reasons are selfishness. All other reasons are rooted in pridefulness. What we do is we serve that God would be glorified. Now that's a a practical thing for us then to put these things in the right terms. Now I want you to think about this in your individual relationships. Let's start in the most obvious relationship within your home. Husbands, God has placed you in your home to serve your wife and serve your children. Or as he said it in Ephesians 5, to surrender your life to surrender your life for your family, for your wife, and even for your children. Now, we get this all messed up in our heads because we see that word uh, submit, but we forget is the verse before that where it talks about the wives. It first says submit to one another, and then it goes on to describe all the various relationships in our life, and it shows how everyone involved should be submitting. So husbands, set the tone. Your life now exists to glorify God by serving your wife and your kids. And wives, your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not how the world lives, this is how we are to live. Wives, you exist to surrender your life for the glory of Jesus Christ by serving your husband and your kids. And kids... You as believers in Jesus Christ exist to glorify God by serving your parents and your siblings, not for your own benefit, but for theirs. It's a setting aside of your life. It's a setting aside of your desires, a setting aside of what you want out of the world. Now, if only one person in the household is doing it, I I admit that's miserable for the one person, right? I admit that fully. But if everybody's doing that, man, what an amazing family that is. Where dad just wants to serve his kids and mom just wants to serve the kids and and the kids just want to serve the parents. When they're all serving one another, they all stand strong together. Well, you move that into your church, it's the same idea. You know why that pastors are often called ministers? Because the word minister means to serve. I exist to serve you. God has gifted me to teach. Yeah, that's great. But not for my glory, not for my benefit. I'm not trying to get famous. I'm just trying to be a good steward of what God has given me, the gift, the ability to teach. And so my job, 
My surrendering of my life, my surrendering of my time is investing in using the gift that God gave me so I can serve you the word of God. And that works whether it's the children's ministry or the greeters ministry or the coffee shop or the guys that were here this morning shoveling the sidewalks for you guys or driving the plows in the parking lot or the people that do the lawns during the week or the people that vacuum out the sanctuary for us every week. And if just a few people are doing that, you're right, it can be annoying in a church to serve. It can be exhausting and overwhelming. But if everybody's doing it, it's powerful. And I think this has been one of the causes of the downfalls of a lot of churches over the years. Uh, There's this assumption that, well, you know, the pastor exists to meet all of our needs. No, no. The pastor's job is to equip you to meet everybody's needs. And as all of you are equipped by the word of God to do the work of God, when somebody in the church has need, the people that are in their life will just by nature, or I should say by their new supernatural nature, serve one another by caring for those needs. Now that's a church I want to go to, right? where everybody is caring for everybody and everybody is loving everybody. And then you move this out into your workplace. Whether you're the boss or the employee, you exist to serve. Why? For the glory of Jesus Christ. For his benefit, not your benefit. And then you take that out into your communities and you serve. Why? So that when people ask you, why are you doing this? You can say, because God has served me so greatly. And Jesus even gives us a piece of that. He serves us certainly in his life, but he's also serving us in his death. Look at this in verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what servicehood is. Surrendering of your life for somebody else, surrendering of your time for somebody else, surrendering of what's important and valuable to you for the benefit of somebody else. This is what Jesus does. This is who he is up to the cross, fully surrendering his life for us. That's who he is. It says he gave his life as a ransom. Now that word ransom is a, is a rich word, right? Like that should immediately bring to mind like ransom notes like that you see on TV. I'm sure that's how it happens, right? I'm sure people just still cut words out of the newspaper and out of magazines and paste them together on a piece of paper like on a cartoon. It still happens like that, I'm sure. I've not been kidnapped before, so I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's how it happens on TV, so it's got to be true. So they make this ransom note and it has their demands and how you can exchange the money for the person, right? This whole idea of ransoming somebody who's been taken captive, whose freedom has been removed from them by their captors. And you have to pay a ransom to get them back. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. Each of us has been taken captive by our own sins, been taken captive by the devices of Satan who's out to steal, kill, and destroy the people of God. We've been given up of our freedoms so that we can chase after the fleshly desires that we have. And Jesus says, I would give my whole life to ransom you out of sin and out of darkness and out of the captivity that comes with it. He sets the example for us. 
as we go forward in verse 46, there's going to be a very practical example that he's going to set forth here. In verse 46, it says, Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd, uh, his disciples and a large crowd, a, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene, uh, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many sternly were telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus and answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and he began following him on the road. So here we now have this actual situation that occurs where Jesus is going to demonstrate what servanthood looks like. Now, he's surrounded by his disciples, he's surrounded by the crowds, and it seems as if they're all kind of following after him. And as they uh, are going now through the city of Jericho, this is old Jericho, the ruins there at that point, uh, the disciples and the large crowd, they're leaving town. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, so this blind guy, hears that Jesus is coming through town. And the blind guy starts yelling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people are like, would you shut up, Bartimaeus? Jesus has enough to do today. He does have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and raise again on the third day, you know. He's already got all of his disciples here that he's got to take care of, and there's this huge crowd following him. Why should Jesus care about you? You're not on his agenda. Well, the blind guy's like, hey, what's he going to do? Make me more blind? <laughs> he continues to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he uses that messianic title, son of David. So what he's saying is he's recognizing that Jesus has the rights to the throne of Israel. He seems to know that about Jesus already. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. He's got his agenda. He's going to Jerusalem so he can be have the snot beat out of him, hung on a cross and die and three days rise again, right? Like he's got his agenda for the day. This is my plan. I got to get to Jerusalem. He was apparently hurrying because he was at the front of the crowd. Remember at the beginning of this, he was leading the crowd. That was his agenda. That was his purpose. But then somebody from the crowd yells, son of David, have mercy on me. And he stops. He changes his agenda. He calls the blind guy to himself. And he says to him, what do you want me to do for you in verse 51? What do you want me, Jesus, son of David, master of the universe, fully man but fully God, what do you want me to do for you? That's a servant, right? He stopped his agenda and says, what do you want me to do for you? And isn't it interesting if you compare verse 51 to verse 36, it's the exact same question that he asked James and John. What do you want me 
to do for you. Because Jesus was the example of servanthood on this earth. And that's when blind Bartimaeus says, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And then immediately he regained his sight. And what do you suppose Bartimaeus is going to do after regaining his sight? He's following Jesus wherever Jesus goes. And he's doing it in a cool new way. Before this, if he were to follow physically Jesus, he would have to like grab onto his cloak or his hand, or he would have to like follow the sound of his voice. But he can see right now because Jesus served him in that moment. He stopped his agenda and he served him. He did what he could do for him. And he healed him in that moment. And now when Bartimaeus follows after Jesus, he sees where Jesus is going. If Jesus tries to juke left, Bartimaeus saw that coming and he just followed him. Because he can see now he couldn't do that before. You see how powerful that is, how Jesus changed his agenda to serve this person. Now, I do want to talk real quickly about this phrase. Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. I want to warn you what that phrase isn't. Some people have misinterpreted phrases like this to say, if you have faith, you will be healed. And if you don't have faith, you will not be healed. And so when Jesus says in this moment, your faith has made you well, some people would bring that to their own life and say, well, I'm sick, I have faith, so Jesus, by decree of the word, has to heal me. That's how they read that. I want to point something out about Bartimaeus. He had faith before Jesus ever showed up. He already believed he was the son of David. He already had faith that Jesus could heal him. He would have never cried out, son of man, have mercy on me. If he didn't think Jesus could heal him, he had faith. But he also had something else. He had a proper understanding of surrender. There's another word he uses to speak about Jesus here. It's this word, Rabboni, which means master. Did you guys ever see Aladdin, the Disney movie, right? The big blue guy with all the power, the genie in the bottle. He's got all the power, right? Unless somebody rubs the bottle and now who's the new master? That's how some people see their relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray he jumps and does what I say. Because I have faith. He doesn't work for you. You're not his master, he's yours. And as master, he has the authority to say, I don't want to heal you today. He does. You need examples of that? You think of the Apostle Paul. Three times he prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. If anybody had faith, it's the Apostle Paul, right? Jesus said to Paul, "Eh, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is seen in your weakness. Wow. Remember the pool of Shalom. There's all of these people surrounding this pool that all of them want to get healed. All of them are there to be healed. Jesus heals one and tells him, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Just in that moment, he made a decision. He had a purpose. And so, yes, he heals some, but he's still the master. So in some way, this man's faith 
had to be joined with God's will. And if you look at this any other way, then you're saying God must bend to your will. But he's the master. He's the Lord. We confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord. That's what we do when we become believers in Jesus Christ. We confess that he's the Lord. But what he does in all of this is he sets the example as the master, as the Lord, he was willing to serve all these people, even the ones that the crowd think aren't worth it, whether it's the children or the blind guy or the poor guy, Jesus serves them all in one way or another. He set the example for us. We see this in John chapter 13, and we'll just wrap it up with this point. But in John chapter 13, if you recall how this goes, this is later on. This is before the cross, but after this moment here, Jesus is going to wash the feet of the disciples, which if there's a stinky job, that's it. If anybody can say, my job stinks, it's the guy that washes the feet of people who live in a society that wear sandals in a desert, arid climate and walk everywhere they go. That's a stinky job, right? And Jesus washes their feet. And then at the end of that, he says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus, the servant, is asking his people, the church, to serve one another. And isn't it sad that in our culture in the way that we've interpreted scripture over the years, but there's really two things that Jesus says my people will be identified by. Their love for one another and servanthood. But is that how the world views us? Now we can blame the world all we want for that, right? But if we live like this, they'll recognize it in us. This is the Christianity that we need to be living out. This is the Christianity that we need to be bringing to the world. A Christianity that loves one another and serves one another. Amen? Let's go and do as Jesus did. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the example of your Son, Jesus Christ, and just the very act of going through your word and going through this gospel that we get to know him more that we get to appreciate him more for who he is and what he's seeking to accomplish in us father when we find in ourselves a pridefulness or a or a position seeking heart that we would repent of that and we would instead just look at the people that are already around us that we would love and care for them and for their needs that we would serve them in whatever way we know how as best as we know how knowing at some points we're going to be taken advantage of, but knowing in every one of those moments we have opportunity to give glory to you as the only one who deserves to be bragged about. Father, would we be known as you were known? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Speaking of service, uh, we have elders in our church and they want to serve you this morning. A very simple thing that we do after service is elders, uh, some of the elders will be up front here. Uh, some of you guys have real spiritual needs in your life. 
Some of you need insight and wisdom into circumstances that you have going on. They would love to spend a few minutes with you and share what the scriptures say about your circumstances. Uh, Some of you just have prayer needs. You just have illness or financial problems or relationship problems, and you just need to pray. They're available for that as well. So I would suggest that you give them the honor of serving you this morning. So we'll have them up here during this last song. You can come up during the song, but if that's uncomfortable, they'll be up here for a few minutes after that. You can catch them afterwards as well. Let's go ahead. We'll close in worship so that they can serve you at the end here.